0: Welcome to the Tactics Meeting Podcast, Episode 3, Hospital Emergency Management, for Monday, January 25th, 2021. I'm Dan Smiley, and I'll be your host as we talk to subject matter experts about response tactics and technology. In the same way that oil spill and hazardous materials responses are managed under the Incident Command System, so our hospitals, when they go into abnormal operations, also go into emergency management. This is a a requirement of the regulations under which they operate. And when we go into emergency management for oil spills, which is what I'm most familiar with, uh, we have some pretty straightforward objectives, which are ensure the safety of personnel stop the release of product and uh, contain and recover spill material. But those are not the objectives that hospitals have when they go into um, emergency management. And to help sort that out for us is today's expert, Liesl Peterson. Liesl Peterson holds a master's degree in nursing leadership and has 11 years experience in hospital emergency management. Liesl Peterson, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks for having me, Dan.
0: I'm thrilled to have you. And I want to start off by uh, asking you, before we jump into hospital emergency management and how hospitals uh, manage uh, the ICS system, what triggered you from going from bedside nursing into emergency management?
1: Well, it wasn't really a choice. I actually was a nursing supervisor. I was the person who was in charge of uh, bed, what we call bed control, how the patients move through the hospital and how they're bedded into their inpatient beds from the ER. Um, and then I had this clause in my contract that said, duties as assigned. And I came in one day and had a box on my desk. So there had been a big change in hospital requirements after Hurricane Katrina and our hospital was not compliant. And so I was given this task and that was opening a Pandora's box really.
0: Yeah. You know what? That reminds me when I was in the Coast Guard and I was a bosun mate and I was one day I was sitting in the in the uh, uh, first lieutenant's office and the chief bosun mate walked in with a big binder and dropped it on the desk in front of me. And he said, he said, Smiley, you're now the unrep captain and we unrep in two weeks. And he walked out the door. Sounds like you had a similar experience.
1: Yes, my chief nursing officer said, how about you just be in charge of a couple drills? And that became a full-time experience over the next year and a half as uh, we brought the hospital up to compliance.
0: So a couple of drills, what what were those drills? What did you start out with?
1: Well, that was just their sales pitch. Um, <laughs> actually, the, the big change was So before Hurricane Katrina, all hospitals really just had like a mass casualty drill, kind of the traditional um, too many patients coming in, sound the bell, all hands on deck for a couple hours, maybe a day, and then everyone goes home. And it's really all about this too many patients in an ER emergency setting. That was every, every hospital had a mass casualty plan. But after Hurricane Katrina, all the rules changed. Um, and they kind of laid out six failure points and it stopped being about individual hazards such as mass casualty or say volcano explosion or bomb threat. And it became about what the hospital could do and whether or not the hospital could do that capability.
0: What do you mean by capability? What is it the hospital is supposed to do?
1: Well, our like you mentioned in the intro, our main... Objective is always to stay open or provide patient care no matter what is breaking around us in our systems. And one of the big differences, and, you know, when we have been talking about oil spill, it's kind of like, well, that's nice. You can set up a 60 person command center and just do this one thing, but we have the normal hospital business to maintain in addition to dealing with whatever is wrong. So when Joint Commission went in and studied, Hurricane Katrina, they came out with some pretty major failure points of things the hospitals weren't able to do and were kind of impeding the uh, ability of the hospitals to take care of patients. Um,
0: Can you give us an example of of what some of those things were?
1: Sure. Um, So there's six main ones that all events are supposed to be analyzed under, and all emergency plans that I write, I just use them as the trigger points because you're going to be using them anyway and it gives a nice 360 picture of the event no matter what's causing the event you still have to deal with these six things so the first thing is clinical impact and i usually explain this as there's too many patients or you don't have the ability to take care of the patients in a normal way so there's normal operations then there's always this uncomfortable feeling as you move from normal to abnormal and then really abnormal, way too many patients, you have patients in the hallway, they're filling up the lobby, that's usually under, easier to understand than just this movement in between normal and abnormal.
0: Well, we've seen pictures of that uh, every day on the news since uh, March, right, the COVID-19 pandemic, right. especially in, in New York and, and Los Angeles, of what you just described is their everyday reality.
1: You're absolutely right. So clinical impact is usually thought of as just too many patients, but so this could be a mass casualty, a big train wreck or you know a, a big event at a common scene, or it could just be too many patients coming from a variety of places um, such as, uh, well, the pandemic. And so the big difference between a mass casualty and an influx of infectious patients or a pandemic or some other disease or infectious disease event, such as salmonella poisoning, is really just time. They either all come in at once from a common scene, or they kind of trickle in over, you know, weeks, uh, hours, weeks, days. But they're both too many patients, and they they can be addressed in the same way. They're, they're coming in too quickly to move them through the system of the hospital in a normal pace or rhythm. But so if that's you have our...
0: the, you know, the, uh, when I have thought of. Well, I mean, frankly, until you brought it to my attention a couple of years ago, I really had never thought much about mass casualty at all. But in thinking about it, prior to the pandemic, I'm thinking, you know, a train derailment or, uh, or an industrial accident, in which case I have X number of people who are injured. And I take those X number of people, let's call it 100 people just for the sake of okay. argument. I got a hundred people who are injured in various degrees and I, I triage them at the scene and I ship them to various hospitals, but that number isn't gonna grow to 101. It's not gonna go to 300. It's not gonna grow to a thousand, but the pandemic, they just keep coming. How are,
1: That's right.
0: how are hospitals dealing with that? Oh my God. I mean, it's mass casualty. I mean, this is a a kind of a cliche thing to say at this point, but it's a mass casualty on steroids.
1: That's right. Well, and I can't speak to other hospitals plans and that's like a whole nother conversation of how a hospital could deal with too many patients either in a quick or slow setting. But the clinical impact, either there's too many patients or you don't have enough staff or stuff to take care of them normally is one of the huge trigger points to um, most of the emergency plans that I write. So another really big uh, trigger point for uh, a lot of plans is communication failure. So do you have any idea why communication failure of the phones, the fax, the internet, why would that affect our ability to take care of patients?
0: Well, I'm gonna go out on a limb and suggest that it would interfere with your ability to connect up with electronic patient records.
1: That's a huge, that's a huge one right there. So most hospitals are on Epic or some other vendor for electronic medical record. And before the EHR is what we call it existed, if the power went out or it was no big deal, like you could take care of a patient with writing their statistics on a napkin, you would open up their chart, their paper chart, and you could see what medications were given. Um, You could see what happened in surgery. You could see their history and physical that had been dictated by the doctor. It was all there in paper and it was no big deal if we lost power or whatever. Um, But now when EHR turns off, we're instantly blinded. We can't even tell what we did an hour ago or 15 minutes ago, unless you yourself did it and happened to remember. You, You have no information about the patient. This is incredibly dangerous to the caregiver who, well, to the patient, because the caregiver doesn't know anything about you suddenly. Um, So a lot of the electronic medical records have kind of a shadow chart that stays open when they lose their connection to their server or um, sometimes power. There's ways that we can spool data and pull that off this kind of like holding pond, and you're maybe an hour behind, but you have some of the most important details, like their lab, values in their h so you, you know whether you're dealing with somebody with diabetes or totally healthy or has this big history of allergies. So the loss of the electronic medical record is a huge communication failure that all hospitals really are supposed to have some sort of downtime procedure, both for a loss of being able to see your current data and loss to, loss to the server for the system itself. And the downtime procedures are often some version of paper shuffling around, but um, a lot of our new staff, our new nursing and physician staff, have never functioned in a paper society or a paper practice. So they are reliant on this electronic medical record and no longer remember how to write a soap note is what it's called. Um,
0: so this takes they probably want to, to like doodle emojis on there too. They're used to texting, right? So I, you know, I want to put a happy face or a smiley face and a thumbs up and a Christmas tree on the record. That's and that's right. not really what works, right?
1: Well, back, you know, a thousand years ago, nurses used to go home with all these numbers written on their arms because that's how they used to document it until it got to the paper chart. And now we document electronically right in the room. So you don't even have like this doodle thing that we used to have. Um, so that's just a lot electronic medical record loss, but there's other major communication failures. Um, and w- when I'm in, in, in analyzing an event, I usually look at our internal systems, where our phones up, what was said and who said it? Did people get the information they needed? Um, what kind of PIO message or public information officer message went out? What kind of liaison messages went out? whether the staff got any sort of announcement or information they needed. Um, did the phone system itself work? Um, that's really important because that's how we communicate care, We're moving patients. Patients don't just show up randomly on the floors. Um, when we're referring patients to other hospitals or we're maybe consulting other providers, we have to use the phone systems to do doctor to doctor or nurse to nurse. Um, so you would, you're forced, if you don't have any phone systems, you're forced into this um, alternate practice of either going with the patient always to give face-to-face report or sending them without information or sending them with written information. And so those are things you have to consider. It isn't just, hey, the phones are down. It's kind of a big thing. And then also... Uh, especially at nighttime, the phone system being down for the hospital itself, you're unable to call in your on-call crews, your surgery crews for emergencies. You can't call your additional staff to come in for assistance, but also the most important, the public cannot call 911. So if the public can't call 911, and there's no way to know that they're hurt or in need, they can't get assistance. And if 911 can't call in to us or our EMS providers can't call in, we, we have people just showing up and we could have prepared better for them. Normally we communicate with um, the EMS systems and they let us know what's coming. So we're ready and kind of primed when they walk through the ER doors. So that's phone um fax is also a big failure point if you can't fax electronic medical record or medical records this is alleviated a little bit with our um sending of electronic medical records now but this used to be a big deal because we get all all of our record requests and medical records themselves used to go by fax
0: do you still and use fax does it
1: we do we oh. use it internally and we do use it some for um hospitals that don't have uh, one of the big Epic or Cerner electronic medical records.
0: So you you fax between floors or between units on in the hospital. Yeah. Oh.
1: yeah. Not all hospitals do that, but some do. Um, and then another one that's really big is the just digital connections, um, like the intranet and internet. And then the in, those are all those are both used for like sending um, X-rays for instance. So a lot of hospitals don't have a radiologist in-house reading the images. Like you go, you get your x-ray and you think some doctor's looking at it. Well, some doctor is looking at it, but they're not probably in the hospital you're in. They're, they could be in a whole other country. So if you don't have the internet or depending on how they're sending it, does the PAC system work? Sending that image and then are they able to pick up the phone to call the result of what they read on that x-ray. So if you lose the internet, you have to often bring providers into the hospital to do those reads. Sometimes right off the modality or the the machine that takes the image, sometimes the doctor has to read it off that that machine itself. And that's unusual, it's not normal processes. So those are the big communication failures. Um, And of course, every event, and I would have guessed any emergency support function, communication failure is always one of the big failure points. Somebody didn't say something or they said the wrong thing or they heard the wrong thing. Um, so a lot about what is said, how you're saying it and are you giving the instructions that are needed is also part of communication failure assessment.
0: Yeah, I think we can agree that that doesn't matter whether that's hospitals or oil spills or hazmat or, or any, anything else, clear communication is a, is a key issue. Absolutely. So that's so failure that, point number, was that number two?
1: That was two.
0: Only two. What's number three.
1: So another um, big failure point is resource management stress. So how what this means to a hospital is do they have the stuff or the people to take care of the patients they have? And even if this is not too many people, maybe this is a normal amount of people, but suddenly you don't have any staff or you don't have any stuff or you don't have food or the the lab reagents or um so there's a variety of, of things where this where it falls into this and my the biggest experience i have with this one is actually snowstorms so snowstorms shut down the highways and the only things they get through the highways when it's in a snowstorm is beer trucks so that's
0: important though don't it don't, is it's don't very overestimate important. the value of beer trucks
1: but it doesn't help us take care of our patients. So um, if we can't get the food, just regular food drops, right? The, um, the food companies have a, a very robust logistics system. They, you know, they send their, their, their shipments out and they sort of get through. But when the freeways are closed and all the semis are backed up on the highway, someone's not getting their supplies. And most places, as we all know, only have really a three-day supply of food on the grocery store shelves. Um, Another big one in the hospital is actually medications. Did the, the pharmacy deliveries happen? So just like any industry, or I assume any industry, we don't keep a year's worth of pharmaceuticals on the shelf. We keep our normal supply, maybe some backups of some really important ones, but Part of an emergency manager for a hospital's assessment is how much is in the supply, um, on, how much is in the cash on the shelf, and how, much, how regularly those shipments come in, and what routes do they come in? Do they come in by UPS or do they come in on their own special Cisco truck? Um, but at some point, if you are running out of medications, you can't take care of people normally, right? And of course, it's, is this normal or abnormal? sometimes with pharmaceuticals, there's always something you can give instead of, but as hospitals shrink their formularies or the list of medications that they use, there may or may not be an alternative we can use for the same thing. Sounds like there would
0: would be beer though.
1: There would be beer, but we're, we don't really use beer in the hospital as a medication. We try not to, Um, but even going outside of that, so we have you know the food, the stuff we use. I had one event; it was a snowstorm that went on and on and on, where we ran out of those plastic pieces of equipment that we use every day just for basic care. You know, the bath basin, the urinal, the the things that people use every day. But we're not going to reuse them, you. Um, but we ran out, and so we did some community sharing um, amongst the community partners, and we do that with pharmaceuticals too. We just you know, we call it the local pharmacies and like, I got this what you got kind of community sharing, but part of the emergency manager's job is to know who those community partners are and what they have on hand versus what you have on hand. Um, One big resource management agreement I made, I had all the nursing homes in town stockpile paper goods, like uh, all those personal care items that are, they take a lot of room to stockpile because they were not allowed with their legis- their regulations to store medications, but we could. So we formed a list of 10 medications that would keep residents, their residents, out of our ER or out of our hospital, like in- insulin and Metoprolol, in a way. And we stockpiled those for them and they stockpiled dry goods for us. And it worked pretty well for several
0: years. That's brilliant.
1: Yeah. It's all about the community partnerships really.
0: Right, okay.
1: So um, another big resource management supply chain issue is um, lab reagents. So being able to take care of a patient in a hospital really does rely on your ability to do lab tests. And if you don't have the things that they mix together to make that lab result happen, you're not gonna be able to do that result. so you, you have to now use different tests or guess or not have all the information you need to make the best decision for the patient. So also radioisotopes, all the whole lab supply chain is really important for an emergency manager to understand what's coming and when and who else might be getting these deliveries in case you need to bed bar or steal from them.
0: This well, it sounds like a pretty specialized position. I mean, I've got you know, 20 years of experience in emergency management, but much of what you've mentioned would not have occurred to me. So it doesn't sound like you can just drag somebody uh, out of the wildfire world or out of EMS and put them into hospitals as emergency managers. Is there some uh, kind of prerequisite? Do you need to be a doctor? Do you need to be a nurse? Do you?
1: there's, There's many different routes into emergency management for hospitals. I think there's three main ones that work really well but you have to understand what pieces you don't have. So I came out of the nursing bed control world so I understand patient patient care very well but you know I don't understand facilities very well at all. So I had partner with the facilities team to tell me like how much water in the basement is really dangerous and and what that alarm on the generator meant and what what happens when the boiler starts venting like I <laughs> Um, at a big event where our boiler vented into the fan deck and it started raining in my OR and I'm like, I didn't know if we were safe or not safe. And, you know, so I evacuated the units till I could get that assessment out of the facilities. So, but if you bring someone into emergency management from facilities, so they have that whole world, right? They know what the equipment does, but they don't know anything about patient care. And so they'll have to partner with the patient care side or the nursing supervisor or some sort of nursing operations to understand when to throw a flare up or when to get the help they need. So no matter what side you come from, you can you can surround yourself with the people who know what, what you don't. Another big entry point that I find working with my colleagues is coming from the pre-hospital world or emergent emergency services, either fire or ambulance, um, paramedics. So they, they often like emergency management jobs, but their big deficit is they they come from the pre-hospital world and they're now working in a hospital environment. So a lot of times their knowledge, they know incident command, they know clinical care really well, but they don't know what happens after the ER. So, And they're often pretty focused on mass casualties. So they're really used to handling a scene of too many patients and bringing them to the ER, but they don't know what happens to them after. So I would say there are a lot of different types of people who can do the job, but they just need to know what they don't know and then find those partners.
0: Yeah. Good point. Good point. So what's the next trigger point, point of failure?
1: Well, utility failure is a fun one. So this is really the loss of power, um, water, natural gas, um, something like, well, any of the utilities that help run the hospital. So this, so if you lose water, can you guess why water loss of water would matter to the hospital?
0: I can't take a shower.
1: Well, I don't care if you can, but what about the patients?
0: Yeah. Well, I meant me as a patient. I mean, toilets can't flush sanitation drops off. Um, well we saw this, uh, are you familiar with the book uh, Five Days at Memorial? Was I am. It, it was written after the <laughs> after Katrina Memorial Hospital in, in uh, New Orleans uh, they, they chronicled the events as the hurricane uh, came in and passed and you know their loss of, of water and power and uh, oxygen and all of these other things. So uh, those of you who are, are interested more in this topic who have not read the book, Five Days at Memorial, I highly recommend it. Um, But there we saw how fast, um, and right there in the title, right Five Days at Memorial, how fast they went from giving normal care to, frankly, being a jungle. Um, Yes, yes, facilities uh, support dropped off.
1: Right. So when you lose water, just normal water, water that's like in the toilet, in the shower. It's really hard to keep the patients clean. Sometimes this is not a big deal. Sometimes this is a huge deal. You know, patients are sick. They're, um, they're not feeling well. They need some just basic sanitation care. So you have to do something to deal with those untidy elements of patient care, but also the staff are normal human beings that also need a place to go to the bathroom to wash their hands. Um, Otherwise infection rates go through the roof and that of course is not helpful for the patients. But also, so power, um, loss of power is a huge thing, not only because it's dark out, but because suction runs off power and suction is used in a lot of our life um, support and uh, treatments that we use. So when the power goes out, a lot of our equipment is on battery backup. And some of it, some of it is, some of it isn't, but you immediately have to check all that equipment. And if you have someone on suction, you have to see if your suction's working. And if the suction isn't working, then everyone on a chest tube, which is just a treatment that we use for a collapsed lung, has to be checked immediately and make sure that they can tolerate the loss of the suction. So. This kind of just cascades down this clinical pathway, but, and it's pitch black and people are frightened and they don't know if the building is safe. And so there's just a lot of management around that. Now, every single hospital in the world or in America anyway, has a generator hooked to it, sometimes more than one. And the power usually comes back on as long as you have fuel, often it's diesel fuel. So if you run out of diesel fuel to run your generator, now you have a collapse of the supply chain that's taking your power down. So you well, stack so re- up on top of each other. As
0: well, so I recall from the story, five days from Memorial, their generator uh, did come on, but because of the way it was wired, um, even though it was above ground level, um, one of the major junction boxes was at um, a, a really low level in the in the building, and the flooding got to it. So long before they ran out of fuel, the the storm surge flooding in, in the area took out their power. And, and that was it. They'd already lost you know power from the power grid. Now they've lost power from the generator with no way to restart it.
1: Right. So a lot of hospitals have moved their generators off the either inside the building and up a couple floors or a hospital in Joplin um, had theirs on the roof, but it was torn off the roof by... A hurricane or tornado sorry not hurricane <laughs> but um, basically you can't put it in a place that's going to flood um, NYU had theirs I think on the third floor and it's still flooded um, due to whatever happened with their doors I know Iowa has flooding all the time it's, it's a, if that's one of your hazards in your community you really have to look at where your generator is and what your backup to the backup generator and then where your suction comes from is it um is it on its own system or is it on one of these generators some hospitals have it hooked to generators some don't um so that's that's just a big impact and then are your staff ready to work in the dark and do they know immediately to go check all the patients to make sure their equipment is working and what has flipped over to battery and what is just turned off that's just part of the emergency manager's job to teach the staff what to do if it goes dark You can't be an effective emergency manager if you teach, oh, the generator will come on. Well, that's great, it usually does. That's amazing, right? We have this gift of uh, temporary power, but what if it doesn't come on? You can't just take it that one step. You have to go to that next, where what if that fails? And then natural gas, um, I did have an event, a real event where they were replacing the natural gas line in front of my hospital and they um, cut it in half. So not only were they working in front of my ER entrance, so I had them coming in the back door, but now I have no natural gas to the hospital and a huge plume of natural gas out in front of the hospital, making everyone sick inside the hospital. So we had to quick convert our boiler, um, and start the, uh, I can't remember what C so member. I don't know anything about facilities. Um, <laughs> they started whatever alternate boiler they were using and we had to deal with the natural gas break. And then we were out there way into the night. So we had all this access control set up to reroute our patient flow to the back of the hospital because you couldn't get in the ER. But now we're out there in the dark and most hospitals don't exercise drills in the dark and often they don't write their plans for the dark. So we had to quick figure out how we can make sure our access control people were seen by people driving on the street until this Uh, Break was repaired so that's uh, natural gas also sterilization loss of sterilization will turn off your or and impact your ability to take care of trauma patients it just kind of cascades down deeper and deeper and deeper Um, those are my big utility failure stories
0: okay so (laughs) after that what what's the next trigger point
1: Um, This one I always think of kind of combined safety and security, and this is a variety of things. So our biggest, uh, so you can think about this as far as the building, is the building safe? So I'm living out here on the edge of Oregon, where our biggest threat is the Cascadia uh, earthquake, where our building will probably collapse. And so I need to have a plan for search and rescue and seeing if the building is safe. You know, can can the facility staff or somebody else vet the building for being inside the building? Um, What is the the life safety plan for fire response? Does the staff know how to get out of their smoke compartment? Do they know how to get the patients out of their smoke compartment? And do they know where to go? Is there a bomb threat plan when somebody calls, does the staff know what to do? Does the staff know how to search? Does the staff know how to evacuate the building? Do they know where to go? How to communicate their need? Hauling patients around, especially when they're hooked to equipment like ventilators and things, can kill them. So this isn't just like the post office evacuation. They all just get up and walk out, right? Sometimes they're in a hurry, sometimes they're being very calm and orderly, but moving patients out of the hospital or even out of their one unit where they are is is something that needs to be carefully taught and controlled, which is why most hospitals have what's called smoke compartments where they just go sort of a horizontal move sideways to they go out of this smoke compartment into this next one while the fire event is being dealt with. Um, So, is the building safe? Like I mentioned before my my boiler event, I did not know if the building was safe. And, you know, what is the threat within the building? What is the equipment there that could put the patients in danger? And not then, to
0: mention that you've got a giant propane plume out in front of the hospital that's just looking for an ignition source.
1: Right. But also, you know, the clinical staff is very aware of how to take care of patients, but they don't know if that plume of smoke around the oxygen tank is dangerous or not. Is that a bomb? Is that dangerous? Is that no big deal? Let somebody. That Should we call somebody? They just don't know what they don't know. And so um, most hospitals have huge tanks of oxygen outside or some sort of um, storage facility. They have tanks of fuel in the ground. They have equipment that's large and noisy and understood very well by the facility staff, but not by the clinical staff. And the facility staff doesn't understand if they flip this switch, they may or may not understand whether that's going to impact patients. So it's about communication on both sides of that. Um, so anyway, is the building safe? This also comes in, do we have you know, a shooting situation? So active shooter is an interesting event for hospitals because they are the recipient of the mass casualty should the shooting happen in say, a school or a post office or somewhere else. So there's there's that response to, ma- to shooting. Right, you're, just, also you're, shooting- receiving,
0: you're receiving patients yeah. that are injured, right. which could be from a shooting or car wrecks or whatever. That's kind of your In- bread and butter, right? I receive injured people. Right.
1: Absolutely. Um, but then there's the shooting inside the hospital. If there's a shooting inside the hospital, our threat is a little bit different than schools. Um, hospital shootings are usually either um, a murder suicide situation or they are looking they're hunting for someone in particular that they're upset with so they get deep into the hospital before the shooting starts it isn't um, usually a pissed off patient in the er looking for meds although that could happen also and also the weapon often comes off the security personnel in the hospital rather than something planned and brought in as opposed to the school type of shooter where it's often planned out way before and um, it's just a whole different cause and effect for a shooting in the hospital but a shooting inside the hospital when the hospital is the one supposed to respond is a whole plan like do you respond do you not respond and every hospital has a different plan around that and then um, the security of people themselves so this is where missing people show up in the emergency operations plan. So if you're missing uh, an adult patient, they were there and now they're not there. How do you search for that patient? Did they get out of the hospital? Are they out in the woods? Are you finding them? Um, You know, what do you do for people who were there and not there or children? This is the, most people know this as Amber Alert or missing baby, stolen child. Um, And a stolen child could be either one in, one that was a patient or just a visiting child. It's still a missing child and you have to respond to it. And most hospitals have some version of dividing up all their staff and watching all the doorways and some sort of protocol should you see something suspicious. But that's a people safety and security event. This is where code gray or bomb um, a security event where someone being held hostage, you may have read in the last couple of years, uh, nurses being taken hostage by violent people Um, Somebody with a weapon would be code silver, most hospitals call it code silver. So these are huge security events that are now being trained in hospital systems that we didn't used to have to learn. Um, And then the last one is just plain straight up access control. How do you control the ins and outs of your campus? How do you interface with the police? who's in charge of what and who gets through your doors, what gets locked down, what gets locked out. Um, Hospitals did kind of make a shift a couple years ago to be consistent with school districts. As school districts started working on active shooter, you know, they've been very engaged in that training for some time now. Their language was a little bit different than hospitals. Used to be lockdown in hospitals was... So there's lockout and there's lockdown and we were opposite of schools so lock out is the external perimeter of the building closing that but inside everything's happening the same you know you're still going to surgery you're still moving patients around and then there's lockdown where everyone stays in place they don't leave their um their area that they're in and then you have to count everyone you have to figure out how you're going to get them out should you need to leave so those are all safety and security trainings And then the last one is just staff support and business continuity. So every hospital is gonna have a different trigger for this, but basically does the staff know what their job is and what they're supposed to be doing? And is there some big need for additional training suddenly? And how's the hospital able to maintain care? So even if, I'll bring the pandemic back here. So everyone saw the big pandemic, too many patients but there was an awful lot of hospitals across America that were in areas that were not yet hit by the, the large numbers of patients, but now we're locked down by the either the restrictions or the mandates to close for elective surgeries. So they almost went out of business. So they didn't have enough patients to even run their, their normal operations. You know, so there was huge furloughs of staff, um, whole service lines were stopped. And so Incident command teams had to kind of shift out of we're planning for patient surge into how are we going to pay the bills? And that's also uh, can be used for incident command, be used for that as well.
0: So, those six triggers that would cause you to activate your incident command system?
1: Well, it really depends on each hospital. Um, These are the triggers that I use, but where in the impact does the hospital raise instant command is up to the hospital. The delegation of authority, which I'm sure is something you've heard in your world, really comes from the CEO and from the board. So the emergency manager has to talk to their CEO and figure out how much they're okay doing on their own and how far they can go without the CEO's involvement or the board's involvement. So I like to put this um, layer fairly low and I like to use the hospital supervisor or the, uh, some, the person who's there 24 seven, most hospitals have some version of hospital supervisor who kind of runs the show 24 seven as far as moving patients around. And as long as these triggers touch patient care or starting to affect patient care, I like to raise command. sometimes just with them and maybe a safety assessment Sometimes um, a little bit later, it's up to the hospital, but some hospitals like to put it way higher than that to where like they've already been doing some um, mitigation around these things before they actually raise incident command. So it's really up to the hospital where your line is and how that activation happens.
0: So what does incident command for a hospital look like? You know, in my world, in the oil spill world where I've spent most of my emergency management time, um, we, we start off with uh, an incident commander, maybe uh, a safety officer. When I have a, an oil spill that looks like it's gonna be something other than trivial, I activate an incident commander, a safety officer, a public information officer, uh, an operations section chief. And, and often those four positions are enough to get me through the incident and, and resolve it satisfactorily. If it's larger, then we, we scale up from, from there. And our, our plan is, is activated as soon as uh, a vessel or facility calls to report the spill. And, and so we, we automatically step over that bright red line in the sand from normal operations into the incident command system um, is your process similar? What activates your response plan and causes you to stand up an incident commander and and support staff?
1: What's well, a good question? And every hospital has a different process, like I said, but we all use the incident command system that you describe. You know, we all start with an incident commander. When that turns on is different for different hospitals, but most of the hospitals that I work with use. Some version of a duty officer is usually the hospital supervisor to identify the event and to raise command, They're the initial incident commander. Some hospitals like to bring in like the executive team right away and some like to let the supervisor drive a little longer. Um, But let's stay with the model of the incident commander being the supervisor and they're kind of driving for a while. In the hospital system, If you don't assign the task, you own the task still. So our incident command trees or how big that org chart gets is really depending on the event. If I have a chemical spill, um, it might be the incident commander and maybe a safety officer just to, um, is this spill dangerous or not? Is this water too high or not? Can we keep this area safe while we clean it up? Do we have a cleanup crew? If it is a, so say the community is flooding and I have no staff to take care of people, then it's gonna be the incident commander and maybe a logistics section chief to deal with housing for the staff, feeding them and housing them because now I'm running a hotel in the hospital for the staff, Um, maybe some messaging. Um, So we do the incident commander, then the two people who speak for the incident command team if they're needed are the liaison officer probably similar to your liaison officer, kind of that business conversation between entities. So if I'm talking to another hospital, my liaison officer is going to be talking to their liaison officer about, hey, what do you got? I got 15 patients. Do you have 15 beds? Kind of thing. Um, Or I need these supplies. Do you have those? And then the public information officer is very similar, I think, to your public information officer is, what does the command team want the public to know? And what does the command team want the staff to know, you know, this is the messaging out. This is what's happening. This is what we're doing. This is what we think is going to be happening. And then we have two other command staff. One is the safety officer, which is just like, I think your safety officer is what we're doing safe for our people. Can we be in this building? Can we use this PPE? Are you safe to work kind of thing? And then we also have a medical technical specialist, which is another command general staff. And this is kind of the subject matter expert. In the pandemic, for instance, in my hospital right now, this is the infection control officer who kind of has the, the lowdown on what is going on. If you had a, a radiation event, I had the radiation safety officer there, if it was, uh, we kind of put the subject matter expert in there. And then below that, we have the same four uh, section chiefs, operations are taking care of patients, planning what's happening the next shift. Logistics. How are we going to do all the systems and stuff that takes care of patients, and then finance because someone's going to file business continuity insurance at some point. Um, our problem is separating out the event from the normal, sometimes, because everything
0: normal we're is doing still happening is- right. I mean, there's still some element of normal, right? Right. So, what is that what does that look like?
1: We hope that there is some element of normal. <laughs> um, so. Patients have, I mean, in hospital, a variety of service lines. Uh, the patients come in through the ER and get bedded in an inpatient ward. There's outpatient services, there's um, surgery, surgeries, both inpatient and outpatient being planned at all times. There's things like cath labs. And so how much of that can stay operational depending on what's going on and how much has to turn off? For instance, if I have 10 clinics and three of them are flooded, I can't take care of patients in there so am I going to compress the clinics into the seven that are left we're going to close them all cuz we don't want to close cuz then the ER is overwhelmed so this is this is all about coordinating what can we do and what's left um, but yeah even during a mass casualty that's that takes a lot of different service lines you know pharmacies in their labs in there yeah, supply chains in there but the cath labs not different cath labs just going along their normal day um, the wound care clinic is doing the same thing. Even the ICU might be doing a whole lot of normal. Maybe they hear they might have a patient out of that mass casualty, but their other 16 patients are still being cared for. And so it, it's that's part of every event is how much is normal and can we keep everything up as normal as possible as long as possible. And another big thing that an emergency manager needs to know is what will break you. At what point do you have to, close your clinics? At what point does your supply chain close off? At what point do you close your ICU? What can you do if you don't have enough staff? How do you make your staff able to do more? What if you have no doctors? What if you have no, you have half the nursing staff you need? What are you going to do? So it's, it's a lot of problem solving.
0: Yeah, well, sometimes I mean, we you can do that ahead of time. <laughs> well, we all saw with the pandemic that in order to save uh, PPE, specifically uh, respirators and gowns, elective surgeries were shut down in most states. I mean, all across the country, people weren't doing elective surgeries because there wasn't enough PPE. I'm sure, among other things, I'm sure there were other reasons as well. But
1: no, uh, so I have a question for you. So the lack of PPE is which failure point?
0: Uh, logistics.
1: No. Logistics is not a failure point. And the ones to we get just patient went through. Care? No, it's resource management. So it's it's the drop of the supply chain, and then you have a clinical impact because you can't take care of people normally. And unfortunately, in many parts of the country, those nurses and doctors were in garbage bags, and they had to reuse um, the PPE masks um, for weeks, sometimes very, very different care than normal. Normally, an N95 mask, which you call a respirator, but we call an N95s, like it's a noun, um, are taken off every time you leave a patient room. Yeah, we, we won't garbage. go down
0: that road today.
1: <laughs> but so we normally, an N95 mask is taken off and thrown away every time you leave a patient room. And many hospitals are still, even today, in the state where you wear one N95 for a week or two. Some hospitals have recovered their supply chain and some have not. Um, We've gone to reusable things. We've gone to extended use. We've gone to reuse. All these things are mitigations, trying to keep uh, the supplies we have as long as possible. And then we've also done alternative types. So a lot of uh, tappers were purchased out of the welding industry, which is kind of new for the hospital world. So these, for instance, my hospital purchased a whole bunch of Pappers for the staff because we didn't have the N95s to use, but they, we bought them from a welding company that had, they had like leather belts. So we had to figure out what to do with leather belts because that's not something we normally, we usually use plastic and things that can be cleaned differently. So we had to deal with what do we do with this buckle and um the staff really like these, but we still have to deal with these buckles. <laughs>
0: well, good work um, on the part of logistics tracking those down.
1: Yeah, our team just never rested until we had enough PPE, and we are in conventional use now. What we call conventional, rather than contingent or crisis.
0: So you're you're walk you're you're putting on a, a respirator. You're going into a patient room. You're coming back out. You're throwing the respirator away. You, your supply chain is full enough that you can use it the way it's intended to be used.
1: Right, we are still prioritizing use of pappers instead, um, because they're reusable. You know, you wear this papper all day, and then, or if you aren't wearing a papper, then you can just throw the mask away as normal.
0: For those of you don't so know, have... papper stands for powered yes. air purifying respirator. You know, it's interesting. Uh, um, talk um, talking about supply chains. I mean, we watched all sorts of things, not just as hospitals, but you know, all over the country. The toilet paper was the the, the one that everybody remembers, right? In the beginning of the pandemic, toilet paper uh, uh, disappeared. But other things became hard to find, too, as, as people started working from home. Like, you couldn't find a, a webcam to buy to save your life. You couldn't find a microphone. And I went into Staples today, and there are racks now of, of, of webcams and headphones and microphones and you know, little hand sanitizers. I mean, the supply chain is, is full again. And it sounds like it is for you as well.
1: Well, it is, but you're absolutely right. Cause I went to buy a desk for my kid and there wasn't a desk to be found anywhere.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, re- I read this article. It's funny from uh, a CEO of Walmart. He said that you could, you could track the the pandemic by what the latest, um, well, I guess you could call it supply chain failure pa- uh, point was. So, you know, on, on, the uh, on, uh, you know, week two and three, it was toilet paper. By week six, it was hair care products. Right? People were uh, uh, buying electric hair trimmers and scissors. You know, No one could go to a barber. Uh, you couldn't find any shade of hair color to save your life. I mean, it was all about hair care. And I'm sure if we went farther down the line, we'd find that, you know, after that, it was televisions and all, you know, all kinds of, of stuff that, that kind of became the the need du jour in the supply chain breakdown. And it, it appears that it's all kind of back up to snuff.
1: Well, kind of. We still have incredible death going on with the pandemic. I think people need to remember, put this one in perspective, though, this has been eight months so far, pandemic and incredible impacts to people's lives, but we still have law enforcement, we still have sewage, we still have running water, we still have the supply chain up for the most part, at least as far as food. You know, some of these big disasters we're looking at are going to be much more impactful. And of course, I'm always looking at that earthquake, but we just need to keep looking at you know, normal and abnormal and not get so tied up on the fact that we're wearing masks to get used to it.
0: Yeah, I, I hear you. Well, th- this has been a really a really great conversation. A lot of things I didn't know about hospital uh, emergency management, and I'm, I'm happy to know it. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Liesl Peterson, uh, our expert of the day. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Tactics Meeting. I hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoyed making it. If you did enjoy the content, please tell a friend. Be safe, and above all, don't do anything stupid.